This episode of EM Weekly has been archived. The ideas presented by the former host of EM Weekly may not reflect or represent the values of the Readiness Lab and the Doberman Emergency Management Group. Out of respect for the guests who contributed to this episode, it remains available online. Going live? EM Weekly starting right now, bringing emergency managers from... EM Weekly starting right now, bringing emergency managers from around the world together to learn, share and collaborate. Welcome to the EM Weekly show. This is your host, Todd DeVoe, and with me, we have Dan Scott. And uh, Dan, today, um, our, our guest had to had to not come because of some conflicts that occurred, and that's the life of... Uh, of being doing you know doing business and whatnot, but doesn't preclude us from having this great conversation that we're going to have. And Dan, do you ever you know in your emergency management career, have you ever partnered with the private industry at all? I have, and there's been times where I've been part of it, been part of the private industry, reaching out to the public industry to partner with them. Absolutely. So today we're going to be talking about private public partnerships and what does that mean and and realistically how effective and efficient uh private public partnerships uh can really be and you know whether it's contractors whether it's debris debris removal whether it's uh water whether it's food what all these different things that happen during an event that as a entity we might not be able to uh, provide for ourselves and or it's more cost effective to go outside of the, the your organization to be able to get these things done. So Dan, what's your experience been with the whole concept of private part private public partnerships? Well, it's a, it's the um, it's not just the idea of, of you know the working during when there's a when there's an incident. It's the idea of continual continual relationship building, partnership, uh, um, in building in, in conjunction with um, writing our plans, you know, the way we do exercises, the way we do our training. Um, just the, the regular uh, meetings, having people from the outside of your organization uh, participate in uh, your emergency management planning meetings and where you're on, be a member of your emergency management team um, for your for writing your plans, but also uh, participating in, in writing their plans and writing how they do their training, how they do and, and how you can um, plan for the future. Uh, as far as I work for a university a private university, um, and I was very cl- worked very close with the um, local emergency manager. I worked in their office as a as a volunteer, and they were on our emergency management team, and uh, we planned accordingly how we how the university itself could aid in the state for staging for if there was ever a large incident, could we potentially provide housing because we had um, on campus housing. These are all things that we worked through, um, and and being a part and actually working through these things in conjunction with each other continuously when things really go down it, it makes it so much easier as we've said many times you hear in emergency management last place you want to be getting to know someone is in the middle of an emergency situation do not trade your business cards over the trunk of a car that's for sure that's the yeah. uh, the mantra <laughs> so i i mean one of the things that we've done i've done um with my students is i have them go through an exercise and the idea is there's been an earthquake um you know wherever they live and, you know, what resources are available for them to use and having them look. And a lot of them on their own come very quickly um, with the idea of using um, 
resources around them. And, and well, matter of fact, in, in this case, I, I put them in Anaheim when the earthquake occurs, right? And, and so they go into the idea of using Disney, the Angels, the Ducks, um, other different other hotels that are in the area since it's a touristy area, uh, you know, to, to help out with that stuff. And so I, I think naturally, uh, and this is before we prompt them, right? This is sort of like the first experience they get. So this is before we even prompt them that there there's the possibilities. And, and the students are already looking outside the proverbial box of who can help us out. Um, so I think it's actually the idea of public-private partnerships, specifically in emergency management, um, is is a natural is a natural cause. Now that being said, I mean we take a look at we rely every day, I say every day, but a lot on the Red America Red Cross specifically for sheltering, right? Um, so I mean we partner with them automatically. So it's already one of those private public partnerships, although some people don't think of NGOs as being private, but they, they are. It's a private entity. Um, so it's, it seems to be a natural fit. But why do you see, you know, in, in some cases, some some friction between the idea of going with um, public uh, or, or, sorry, with private uh, entities during disaster? I think most of it's a misconception of what they offer. I mean, you, you see a lot of them are nonprofit, even though they're they're private. Some of them are for uh, for profit, so you get that that concept as well, and you th- and you see that they could potentially be taking advantage of the situation, but that's not always the case. Uh, the, the the American Red Cross, for instance, they set up they have shelters and and as you said, but they they in in turn return and and start building partnerships with those where they're going to set up shelters. So that you know that's one of the benefits of working with the, the Red Cross, especially when it comes to to sheltering, is they've they've pre-established those shelters. They've They've in many cases pre um, they've already got their uh, equipment there so they can they can set up a uh, uh, shelter pretty quickly in the event of if one needed it. But they've already built those those relationships. They may not continually uh, maintain that, but they do the work for you um, in, in that aspect of it. So that's one of the benefits of working with with those also with others that come from all over the country being nonprofit and being, you know, local, you know, not, they may, some of them may not even be local, but they're coming to help you from the outside. Um, and it's just an additional resource uh, that you may be able to utilize in that situation. Um, Absolutely. And, you know, you see this in EMS uh, emergency medical services um, a lot, right? Where you have the fire department who is responding to the calls, but you have private ambulance providers uh, doing transportation. Um, you have the private ambulance helicopters, um, Mercy Air, for instance, is one that comes to mind. Life Flight, I guess, is another, um, where they actually are private and they come and they and they help out with with those assists. Um, you, you know, uh, Rural Metro, for instance, a huge private um, entity uh, with with firefighting capabilities as well. Um, you have the um, private fire departments that come out and, and help out with wildland fires. Uh, so, so that that. That concept is 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 there a lot and it's utilized um, in various different aspects of things. Matter of fact, you know, Harvard Business Review talks about P three, which is private public partnerships, right? So it's easier to say that than private public partnerships. So P three, but you know, and and it's also built upon relationships. I think that is one of the things that we do well in emergency management is we coordinate and build relationships, and to build relationships with your with your uh, local businesses, I think is, is critical. Um, and I think, think of this way. We do not have, we, I say the, in the public side, uh, we don't have a great logistics program necessarily. Some cities may, 
uh, but I'm, you know, the the mass, the vast majority, as as politicians like to say, the vast majority, um, they, you know, do not have logistics. So working with WalMarts and Targets and uh, other organizations, um, FedEx, things like this for logistical aspects, they'll come in and help during disasters. UPS, for instance, um, they all come in uh, during disasters and help out with with moving equipment here and there. Um, especially if you're moving um, stuff from one side of the state to the other, you know, so the logistical support, um, food, you know, Target, for instance, um, when I was working in local government, uh, we had a great relationship with Target. And if we had an issue, they would come and drop off uh, cases and cases of water um, and other uh, sources like that, uh, food sources, biz- local restaurants, uh, that would provide food services and things like this. Um, you, you see in some of these hurricane areas where the restaurants that are still functioning, they'll, they'll open the doors and start cooking all their food because if they can, um, because of power outage and they don't want to waste the food. So, you know, start doing food services. So all those things are, are, uh, really, um, are really interesting in the public private partnerships. And what's good about it too, is, I mean, what's important about it, I should say is, is, uh, is, is knowing about these things uh, beforehand and being establishing, I mean, Home Depot and Lowe's and, and, and uh, they have, they have great programs that aid in, in those situations. They also have, um, they have, in a, in lots of cases, they have local uh, grants or particular um, preparedness uh, initiatives that they will, they will allow for an organization to be able to come in and, and utilize some uh, type of grant for preparedness equipment or for uh, stocking up supplies um, in Home Depot and Lowe's, uh, you know, or any other uh, home goods store really um, are going to be great for being able to give equipment and, and supplies and even and water and tools. And I mean, there's even resources, even mm-hmm. people, you know, so to help do these things and um, knowing those up front, knowing those like Walmart have, you know, Walmart has a grant for local jurisdictions that if you apply for for emergency preparedness, you, you know, that's a good thing to, to know you, that they have, but also know what's, what they usually keep in inventory. These are good yeah. things to to, to uh, have in, in your mind, especially when you're doing your planning and your training. And when something happens, uh, these are the people you're going to reach out to. So having those those individuals, not just knowing, oh, well, Walmart, I'll go to Walmart. Who at Walmart are you going to go talk to? Who's in charge of that? Who, who Have you built that relationship with them in your local jurisdiction? That's important. Who do I need to talk to? Or, you know, it's easy to say, oh, I'm just going to go to Walmart. Well, Walmart's going to be busy. Like, are you, do you have that contact? Uh, that person that you know, that, that relationship that you've built, that you call them up and say, we, we got this and, you know, um, we need this. And they can say, okay, we can help you versus, well, I'm going to walk in the store and try and get help. That doesn't work. You know, this goes to pre, uh, not learning, not getting to know each other during an incident. It's getting to know each other before. Yeah, absolutely. And the, my relationship that I had with Target um, was was that way. I, I knew the uh, store uh, safety manager that was over there. Um, we had his phone number, you know, in my in my cell phone. So if something happened, I could give him a call. Uh, pretty much, you know, twenty four seven, we can get a hold of those guys over there uh, and to, and to be able to get resources. So Nick asked a question about the idea of private partnerships that might exist around text messages, images, and video uh, analysis. I, I don't know about the analysis part, Nick, um, but I do know that. Um, there are organizations out there. I can mention, like D Land, for instance, Viochi. Um, um, they all do 
that type of work as well. Um, and then, of course, you know, using your – I'll talk about my our sponsor, Titan HST, um, with mass notification um, systems using text, video, um, using uh, – email all, all those all those services specifically uh to be able to do um mass certification and situational awareness right uh using that software to be able to go to have people go downrange uh take video and send it back to your eoc uh using those services like that are are critical in in the idea of of running a smooth uh you know response in and and I think it's interesting too. When I won't go with technology here because Nick kind of put me down that rabbit hole for a minute. Um, you know, when when you're a small jurisdiction, uh, specifically, we'll talk about in, in Southern California. Uh, you, you know, when the disaster occurs, for the most part, the news media is going to be over, like, say, the larger cities. LA City, for instance, is going to be one. So, getting real air coverage unless you have a lot of money for your city and you don't have your own helicopter getting that footage from uh the disaster area in your city back to your eoc it becomes difficult and it used to be we would go out and have maybe uh some video footage taken and then we bring it back to the emergency operations center and kind of take a look at it uh then we started doing you see facetime things like this but having a system where it can cross go across um platforms whether you're on iphone or whether you're on an Android phone, uh, being able to go across it. That's a really important. It's critical to get that information down and be able to set a team out there to do assessments and stuff like this. So getting information back into the EOC uh, is is really important. And I think using your public-private partnerships, like Titan HST, for instance, um, is critical to be able to do the job in, in an effective manner. What do you think of that, Dan? Well, no, I, I absolutely agree. And I think ultimately, too, the um, the rising number of uh, jurisdictions that are utilizing drones uh, specifically for that reason to uh, they're they're purchasing um, the the quality equipped drones to be able to to um, <coughs> deploy those in in and after emergency situations to get more situational awareness of the extent of damage um, and and how things uh, how far things go and if there are people trapped these all these things are these things are being utilized through technology today in the the jurisdictions that are taking advantage of that are uh, definitely ahead of the curve. But also, there's a, you know the aspect of um, those affordability. There's a, there's jurisdictions that just can't afford uh, that type of thing, and and uh, that's and it makes that even more important to establish those partnerships with jurisdictions who can, so that when something happens in your jurisdiction, you can rely on another jurisdiction to come in and help you with those resources. Um, but technology is definitely um, it, it, we're using it now, and we're going to use it. I see, we're going to use it even more. Uh, in the future. I remember in 2005 ish, uh, going back a little bit that time that there was this article or uh, ad, you know, I remember that, like that big magazine that would come out with all like the resources for, for public agencies. It's like a really big, it's like, yeah, anyway, and we're flipping through that and there was a, a drone that you'd buy and you actually had to have a guy, like an operator, almost like a remote control airplane. And it was huge. And yet it would come take apart and you put it into this big box and put it in the back of your in your car. It was a huge drone. And the reason why I bring that up is technology is so easy. I bought a drone with the video capabilities for my son just to goof around with. And um it's it's fits in the size of your palm of your hand. And he's able to fly it around and you can look at the stuff that's going on, on your on your cell phone, you know, and he, and it's just amazing. Uh, and he, I mean, you could get, that was like, I don't know, I was, it was less than a hundred dollars. And then, um, and we're looking at some drones that are like, 
you know, around 800 bucks. They have all the capabilities that you need. And again, they f- it fits in the palm of your hand. And it's not this huge, you don't need to have your, under, uh, producer Brian will know the number. I think it's like, a, like 49 grams, something like that, Brian. Is that what it is? You can, something like that, that you can actually fly without a license. Yeah, I'm not sure the weight, but I know the new DJI Mini is one gram under that weight. Yeah, I want to say it's like 149 is what that DJI Mini weighs. So, yeah, the Michael. The you get, the more licensing and, and credentials you have to have to operate them. Right, and, and that's the thing. Like, you know, if you get that 149 and it has video, it's HD video, and it shows you everything that you need to see. And it's, you know, you're able to do that. You don't need to have, but speaking of public private partnerships, you can, there are drone operators out there for hire. We're just going to go, we're going to go to break real quick here, but I want to address Michael, uh, his, his contact, his comment. It says, he says, plus contracting costs are reimbursable, not just over time, if reasonable and federal declaration is made. Or, or California proclamation. Absolutely. And that's uh, the advantage too. And we, you know, we've seen with this whole COVID response uh, that the, your regular staff is being burnt out, you know, days after days, hours after hours of being in the EOC and operational um, and bringing in some contracted um, people is, uh, is, is key. All right, everybody, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, let's talk about how we operate our EOC with contractors. The Outer Limits Supply Company was founded on the idea of providing high-quality first aid kits. Their goal is to supply the life-saving equipment you'll need to mitigate the majority of medical or traumatic injuries often seen during austere conditions. Whether it is when you are on the outdoor adventure or your team has responded to a major crisis, the Outer Limits Supply Company provides practical, user-friendly first aid and trauma kits that anyone can use. If you enter EM Weekly at checkout, you'll receive 20% off your purchase. So go to www.outerlimitsupply.com today. Seconds count during an emergency. That's why at Titan HST, we're always inventing new technology to help people stay safe and help people who can provide help get connected with people who need help. At Titan HST, we've deployed mesh networking, allowing emergency communication, even when networks are down, augmented reality, and real-time translation. We believe in the power of people to help each other stay safe and thrive. Are you looking for that bag to help you keep organized as you travel around, something you could carry with you every day? Well, VanQuest was founded with a simple mission. Build the toughest bags and packs for you to carry every day and to help you stay organized and prepared. VanQuest has been making the ultra-durable bags and packs since 2011, and their bags and packs are trusted by the clients such as the FBI, the U.S. Secret Service, and U.S. SOCOM. Yes, that is the U.S. Special Operations Command. Their bags and packs offer the best organization for the user-friendly experience, such as the high-visibility interior for the users. I'm telling you something, I love that orange inside the bag because I can find the things I need quickly. I love my VanQuest bag. Don't forget, they offer free shipping, 100-day return guarantee, and a lifetime warranty. And if you put in EM Weekly, all caps, all one word, you get 10% off your total purchase. VanQuest.com. All 
Welcome back from that uh, that quick break. I thank you for listening to our sponsors and 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 yeah, go go check them out. And you know, with VanQuest and with uh, Outer Limit Supply, you put the EM Weekly uh, all capitals in there, and you get twenty percent off. I mean, that's uh, that's 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 a good deal. And I mean, that's more than uh, it's more than just your tax off there. You also you know save on shipping and everything. So, man, that's twenty percent off. Daniel, you should utilize that uh, that discount code. <laughs> I pre- I appreciate that. I'll, I'll take that into consideration. So I have a friend of mine who I won't say what city it is because I, I didn't ask him to talk about this, but anyway, he's a emergency manager for a, a local jurisdiction, in LA County. And he actually started manning his or staffing, sorry, started staffing his uh, EOC with volunteers and when I say volunteers through, uh, through, through from team Rubicon um, and um, with, contractors because he didn't have number one he didn't have enough trained members of his city because it's a smaller city to be able to work through the eoc and then he didn't have um you know he couldn't do just in time training necessarily uh and and so it is it is a special aptitude and attitude that you have to be to work inside that so do you see and i think you know using the, the context of covid do you see more emergency management programs utilizing contractors to to fill critical roles in the emergency operations centers? Well, I mean, as, as you just said, that's that's kind of already being done, um, and we've we've kind of broached the subject before as far as utilizing contractors for um, filling certain roles or writing plans or uh, um, helping um, a jurisdiction through um, as, as we continue on through um, the response and recovery of COVID. So, yeah, I, I believe contractors can be can be utilized at a, a very well and, and done properly at a very low cost. Um, it's the long term, you know, that, and, and it's always, you know, when it comes to the contracting aspect for me, it's the long term. What are we going to do long term? Um, we, we can't always be short-sighted and, and um, directing what's what's right in front of us. We have to be thinking long-term and uh, filling, a, filling a role or writing a plan with the contractor. Who's going to maintain it? Who's going to, who's going to pick up it and, and pick up that ball and run with it and continue running with it and continue training and continue uh, implementing a program once the contractor leaves. Uh, that's, that's the issue. Utilizing a contractor is, is great. Now contractors can do wonderful things uh, for an organization, uh, especially volunteers. Um, uh, the, the, you know that, but the training aspect is what's important there as well. Well, that being said, I mean, if you take a look at your executive leadership at most organizations or most cities, I should say, you probably have about a five-year. I mean, it depends, right? I mean, I'm looking at averages. You probably have like a five-year stint of where they're going to be there. What's your, your fire chief, your police chief, your directors of public works and stuff like that? Um, whether they move around to from smaller cities to bigger cities or just retire out, you know, you, you don't normally see a huge longevity um, in those roles. Um, very different reasons why. So that means like at least every few years or maybe even like every, every year, I guess, because you got the refreshers and can you continuous training um, with those members of the organization? Now that being said, right. Using this as the, as the one side of it on the other side, if we use contractors, um, you know, assuming that they are going to have, freshly trained or, or continuously trained members working for them, which is not necessarily true, but there's an assumption I'm making here. Um, is it, is it, do you get a more effective response by utilizing contractors that way? 
I, I don't, I don't believe so personally. I mean, I feel like uh, you get more, you get more ownership of a program when, when they're, when they're brought into the fold versus a contractor who knows they're only there a short time. Um, and it, that's, and that's an important aspect for me is, is having a vision that's longer than the end of the contract. Um, who's going to, you know, that, that, having that ownership of the program that you are establishing and uh, basically a legacy that you're leaving behind, whether it's for two years or five years, uh, knowing that someone else can come in and pick it up without having to start all over again. Now I've seen contractors who have long-term contracts with with, with jurisdictions and it's almost like they're a member of the, uh, of the staff, you know, uh, when it comes to that, they're just not being paid for by the, city directly, you know, saving money on the back end, I suppose, of the retirement and and benefits and stuff like this. Um, You know, so it's funny because, like, I've ran into people who've been, like I said, long-term contractors with people, and then then you you don't even realize that they're not necessarily, you know – employed directly by the uh, by the city i always find well, that that's the, you know that's the difference is a long-term contractor there there are positions all over uh, in the government as well that they that is a considered a contracted position but it's more um if you look at the position itself it's it's contracted because of where it's funded from but the position itself is long term it's not a short-term contract and a lot of these things that are being especially if you look at things that are being done right now they're more short-term uh, because they're being done during COVID and they're responding to COVID. Uh, it's what happens after COVID. It happens after, after this initial response that, um, that I look at, look to a lot of these positions that are being funded are being funded by, by funding that's coming from the government. And when that funding runs out, odds are the position runs out. And um, this is the short sightedness of that, that bothers me. No, I agree with you. I agree with you that, that, Grant positions when you're when you're taking it, but for just a little little tip for you guys out there looking for jobs, take a look at what the funding source is. If it says grant funding uh, or limited, uh, you know, one year contract or one year um, uh, position stuff like that, those normally means it's contra- it's a uh, grant funded. So uh, if you're going to take that job, just take that with understanding that you know your job might be. You're, you're probably not long for long in the tooth to be there for for that that particular position. Yeah, there's a special person that takes on contractor roles. I mean, they, they and they're usually those are more established and they've you know they've they're they're on in in uh, in they've had a lot of experience. They're retired out usually, and they have more experience. They have more flexibility in their time. They have more flexibility to say, um, I oh I can do a year, I can do two years versus no I need a I need a steady income that I know that I can plant my feet and be and and establish a career. Those, you know, so it, it is the individual that decides uh, how, what jobs they're going to go for, what contracting positions they're going to go for, what grant funding uh, they want to implement. Yeah, but it's not, it's not just the, 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 uh, the idea of the steady income because you can get paid well during doing contract work, but it's just the, uh, the idea sometimes of, of consistency. You know, well, yeah, that and, and laying down roots and things like this, but uh, that's another story. So going back over to the public-private partnerships, right? Since you know, talking about contractors and stuff, um, you know, we talked about. Sounds like we're talking all about roses that happens, right? It's all all roses and milk and honey, right? When you do contractors, no, there's some issues, right? And and those are the things that when you do a contract that you have to really be aware of, um, set those ground rules and the expectations um, early. Uh, make sure that everybody on both sides of that contract has a, a understanding. Uh, the, you know, I, I was laughing one time when we we're talking about uh, Home Depot, for instance. It's a true story with Home Depot. So uh, I was working for this guy, and he goes, "Okay, what we have to do is we have to get favored 
how would you call it? Your favorite nation status with, with Home Depot. And he, what he basically wanted to do is have a contract or a, a PO basically saying that as soon as something happens, that we're first in line, right? We're first in line. We're going to be in there. And, they're, you know, when you know, we need generators, they're not going to sell generators to, to other people except for us first. And I'm like, I don't, I don't think it really works that way. You know, I don't, you know, cause if you think about this, if they're going to, if we're going to have that favored nation status, how many other jurisdictions are going to be knocking on the home Depot for that same, same status. So there still is a little bit of the first come first serve uh, that comes in with, with that type of stuff. Um, you know, understanding your debris removal contractors, uh, they, they might be countywide, you know, and, and does it mean that they're going to get to you first? Uh, you know, so understand that there's still going to be some some issues specifically with like a, a contractor who has multiple contracts within the same region. Um, you know, and that's why when we talk about contractors going to the EOC, um, you know, it gets a little bit difficult because, you know, if you're if Dan Scott is contracted with three cities, what city uh, gets the get him, you know, and so that's. That's always an issue um, as well when you take a look at contracts. So make sure that you that you sit down and you put those um, put those parameters out there, what, what your expectations are, what they could actually deliver. Um, make sure it's on that contract uh, because it's very 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 important to do that. Otherwise, you're going to uh, get burnt at the end. What do you think of that, Dan? Well, I, I think that's you know that's that's a very important um, aspect of it as well. I mean, if you have a contracted service that uh, has contracted out to uh, uh, every organization in the area, which uh, let's say uh, assisted living homes for the elderly, and you got ambulance services, and ambulance services um, are are contracting with these, but it's all the same ambulance service. It only has so many ambulances. Well, they've overextended themselves, and you don't realize that uh, when you're doing when you're making these contracts, and when it comes down to it, then you're then the the service itself is not there. So making sure that the the services and how how extended those services are and how likely it is going to it is going to be if a whole jurisdiction it's easy to if one area is uh, is affected but if you got a whole jurisdiction that is affected which happens quite often uh, how realistic is it that that service is going to be there? Well, we're coming here close to the end here of our show here, but I want to leave everybody with this: uh, when you're looking at you're getting your contractor and you're starting looking at prices, right? Um, just because it's the cheapest price doesn't mean it's the best. Uh, you're going to get the best, uh, probably even less than uh, the best services. So uh, I think that you should take a look at what services they can provide, how long they've been around, uh, how, how, how big they are specifically. Cause like I said, if Dan Scott is a, as a contractor signs up with three different cities and he's the only guy in his, is an agency or his, you know, his uh, firm, uh, it's going to be hard for him to be in three different EOCs at the same exact time. Dan, I'll let you leave with the final word. Goodbye. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, you know, building those relationships, building those partnerships is, a, is an important aspect of being an emergency manager. And in, in being in, the, in um, any, any uh, response capability or um, uh, planning capability, having the, building those partnerships, those relationships, those trainings, and, and the, the long-term aspect of what we do every day, uh, take the time to build those relationships up front. Uh, in the back end, it, it becomes incredibly hard. Absolutely. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for spending your morning with us. Uh, thank you, Dan, for, for being here. Producer Brian, love everything that you do for us in the back end. And don't forget to follow us on your favorite podcast player, Facebook, YouTube, LinkedIn, uh, Twitter, 
wherever else that you can find us. And uh, see you guys next week and stay safe and stay hydrated. Do your sign off. <laughs>